This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. I'm Adam Grant, here at Knowledge at Wharton, with two authors who specialize in a topic that matters a lot at work, but we don't discuss enough, humor. We'll start with A.J. Jacobs, the author of four best-selling books, all very funny, all based on life as an experiment, the know-it-all, reading the encyclopedia for the entire thing, start to finish. Then, thinking about what would happen if I followed the literal word of the Bible in the year of living biblically. Then, my life is an experiment, actually reinventing everything based on George Washington. And most recently, asking, could I drop dead healthy? How do I reinvent my body along with my mind and spirit? AJ, welcome. Thank you for having me. How do you think about becoming funny at work? What makes a leader humorous? Well, as my uh, co-interviewee will tell us, uh, you know, analyzing humor can be terribly unfunny. But that said, I will, I will say that I think a lot of the humorous thinking uh, has uh, parallels to the way we should be thinking in business. It has uh, a lot to do with creativity, taking disparate ideas and mashing them together, which I think is a way to get great businesses. Uh, I, I was trying to think of an example. I didn't think of a great one, but Chipotle, you know, they took fast food and healthy food and mashed it together, and they got this super business, So, which is the same idea as humor, taking two things. Uh, you've got things like uh, humor is hard, you know? You've got to come up with 100 ideas before you get one or two that really work. And I think that's a crucial lesson for entrepreneurs, you know, uh, and there's... I read him, as you know, I read the encyclopedia, so there are dozens of examples of this. You know, Chester Carlson, who invented the Xerox machine, he pitched it to like 43 companies before someone uh, accepted it. I was just listening to a radio show about E.E. E. Cummings, who, uh, who in one of his books, he thanked, he acknowledged all the publishers, the 15 publishers who had rejected his manuscript before, which seemed a little petty to me, <laughs> to be honest, but I thought he was supposed to be such a joyful person. Uh, but anyway, that uh, that's another lesson. So taking ideas and, and working hard. And, and there are plenty of other parallels. Well, I'd love to pick up on those in a moment. Let's turn it over to Peter McGraw, who's our other author today, with Joel Warner, has written a book called The Humor Code, which will debut fittingly on April 1st. It's about a global search for what makes things funny across the world. Peter, talk to us a little bit about what makes leaders or business people funny from your perspective. So this is clearly a difficult topic. So I've, I definitely have had people tell me, this is too, too hard to study. You should stick to easier subjects. But yet, as you think about it, humor is this really important thing, whether it be at home or at work. And there seems to be some good evidence that funny leaders, humorous leaders, are going to be more successful, at least within certain tasks. So, uh, so take the CEO, for example. The CEO doesn't necessarily need to be humorous, but there are certain roles that having a good sense of humor is going to be useful. So for instance, someone who has to deal with shareholders. So how do you appease shareholders? How do you present the good and bad news in a meeting in a way that not only is just avoids being mind-numbingly boring, but also might ease the sting of a little bit of sort of unsteady news along the way? Or how leaders have to 
push forth change in organizations. So this is maybe at the very top or a mid-level manager. People are really reluctant to make change. The losses out, outweigh the gains. And having a sense of humor, being able to make fun, joke about, tease people's reluctance to move forward can be a really valuable skill. And then I think some of it is, is just an orientation. This idea that business is competition. And at times, you're going to need to critique your competition, whether it be an usually in advertising. And so having a sense of humor and having that kind of orientation may open companies up to innovative marketing communications, ones that can Pepsi taking on Coke, Audi taking on BMW, and back and forth. Mm -hmm. So these are a number of ways that the process of generating humor might actually be useful in the workplace. I want to dig into that process in a little more depth now. And let's turn the question to both of you. What can we actually learn about how to become funny from the way that you wrote your books? Because in a way, you've gone to some pretty extreme lengths to expose yourself to strange experiences that ultimately generate humor. Do leaders have to do that to, to actually live their life as an experiment? To go to countries <laughs> where people are not comfortable with the brand of humor that you're about to bring right. and start pitching it and see what happens? Or to do stand-up comedy as a professor wearing a sweater vest? Is, is that the key to becoming funny? Well, I wouldn't recommend, like, for instance, when I uh, lived by the year, uh, lived by the Bible, I had this huge beard, like this topiary, and people would avoid me on the streets. So not necessarily a great way to go about business. But I would say the idea of taking things to the extreme, that sometimes can be very helpful in coming up with business ideas. Uh, so for instance, one of my first articles, like 10 years ago in this genre, uh, I had read Tom Friedman's book about the world is flat, about outsourcing. And I loved the idea, but I was sort of a solo practitioner, a writer living at home. I was like, how can I do this myself? So I outsourced my life. I hired a team of people in Bangalore, India to do everything for me. So they answered my phone and they answered my email. They argued with my wife for me. Did they take <laughs> naps for you? <laughs> I wish they did. They did worry for me. I had all these worries. I said, you worry about them. And I felt a lot better. But, uh, but anyway, that's taking something and pushing it to the extreme, I think, is a great way to generate ideas. Now, you don't want to necessarily, uh, you want to pull back from that extreme. But as a way of brainstorming ideas, take a phenomenon, push it to the edge, and see where it goes. And then from that, uh, new ideas will bloom. Peter, you're now back from the extreme. Yes. Was it worth it? <laughs> totally worth it. Yeah, so we, uh, Joel and I went to Tanzania to investigate a laughter epidemic that allegedly happened in the 1960s. We went to Japan to try to figure out these crazy game shows. And we even spent time in the West Bank in, um, in a, what many people consider a really dark place, in a place that wouldn't be very funny. And yet we found lots of hilarity in Palestine. And one of the things that I think uh, is a useful insight when it comes to humor is that it, it actually arises from potentially negative things. Uh, there's a Mark Twain quote that I think is very nice. He said that the secret source of humor is not joy, it's sorrow. There is no humor in heaven. Because heaven's this perfect place, it's a wonderful place to be, but there's just not many things to laugh at. And so my tip is to look for the things that are wrong, that are amiss, what we call violations in the world, and seize on those, seize on those moments, 
and find a way to make them okay, acceptable, or safe. And so there's this delicate dance, and it's why humor is this, this really appealing skill. You've got to find what's wrong, a violation, and make it okay, make it benign. So you have to have a safe space. You have to create kind of a safe space. You have to create a, a culture in which it's sort of okay to fail. Because if it's not okay to fail, then that's going to inhibit these risks. How do you stay on that tightrope without falling off? So you, you want to point out something that's wrong, but yet make it acceptable. You call these benign violations in the book. How do you know when you're not falling off one side or the other, that it's either too much of a violation or perhaps not enough? I guess a lawsuit, I guess that's sort of <laughs> when you realize you've gone over the edge. But yeah, it certainly is a tightrope. Uh, uh, but your whole book is about that, the idea of, uh, of taking something offensive and something inoffensive and sort of mixing them together and finding just that right. And it is a skill. It is a skill. And, and yeah, humor in business, I think, can be very dangerous. I mean, just look at The Office, you know, with Steve Carell. And uh, that is an example of a boss who really wants to be funny, and it's just sad. So don't try too hard. For me, it should be organic, and it should just be... Um, uh, I, for me, using humor is a, is a good way to just come up with ideas. Like I don't, I don't necessarily think of myself as a humorist. Even I just try to be creative and come up with ideas, and and some of them just by their nature of being disjointed and un, and unexpected and surprising that they're going to hopefully be funny. But I don't go into it saying, "All right, I am going to, this is going to be hilarious." I um. I echo what AJ says. There are a few things that I think you can do to maximize your chance to be funny and minimize the potential impact. So one is take aim at yourself. So, so the, the target of the joke matters a lot. And so wherever possible, the, the, the humor should be inclusive, right? Something that we can all laugh about together. And as a manager, making fun of yourself is a great way to, to get things rolling. And that's actually a trick that we learned in Los Angeles when we were hanging out with all these stand-ups. When a stand-up comedian gets on stage, he or, he, he or she excuse me, usually makes fun of the thing that's just peculiar about themselves. So when I, um, when I got back on stage again at the end of the book to prove that we've learned something, my first joke was, I spend a lot of time with comedians, and I learned you need to get a laugh right away, hence the sweater vest. And so, so wherever, wherever possible, keep it inclusive. Stay away from that list of things that your HR manager will send you an email about. And be quick to apologize. I think that people are really willing to forgive if someone's attempt at comedy was heartfelt, was meant to be positive, but somehow failed. I like to say this is what happens when a humor researcher tries to be funny. <laughs> Yeah, and I guess that's a risk that some of us are more willing to take than others. Yes. <laughs> now, when, when you think about humor, one of the questions that comes up a lot has to do with gender, sort of a hot-button issue. What, what do both the, the data say as well as the experience say about how men and women are funny in different ways? Well, I'll tell you, I, uh, I interviewed Tina Fey uh, for Esquire. I write for Esquire sometimes. And you might have to edit this part <laughs> But I thought she had an excellent point. She said, well, what's the difference between men and women comedians? She said uh, that the male writers on the sitcom 
uh, had a jar where they would pee. They, would, they were too lazy to go to the bathroom, and women would never do that. But other than that, there was not a big difference. <laughs> that was a good answer, a little bit of a dodge. So I'm gonna take that and do a little dodge. <laughs> but you, as a scientist, tell us what, what, is, this, what is the data on, on men versus women? Yeah, so I think what people like to argue is that men are funnier than women, and if you ask them to make a case for it, they'll point to professional comedy. And I think that's a, a fallacious argument. And that would be like saying that men are better at medicine just because there's more male doctors. And no one really believes that. The literature on regular everyday people outside this system that seems to prop men up and hold women back is that men and women are more alike than different in both their production and their appreciation of humor. And actually for the humor code, uh, we ran a study with a couple of my classes where we entered them into a joke competition. So the students submitted jokes, and they indicated whether they were male or female. And then I read the jokes aloud in class and had all the students rate them on how funny they were, but also how offensive they were. And what we found was that men were slightly, but not statistically significantly, funnier than the women. You couldn't make a case that the men were funnier than the women. Especially with the man reading the, the male Especially, jokes. Exactly. Which is stacking yes, the deck in, right. the, in yes, the men's right. favor. Thank you for identifying that confound. <laughs> couldn't avoid it. <laughs> so, um, but what was interesting was the offensiveness ratings. There, women won. That is, the men's jokes went too far. So they, they succeeded a little bit more, but they also failed a lot more. And so what you often see is a difference might just be a cultural difference in terms of people's willingness to express publicly these displays of comedy. But the literature really is very clear. The ladies are just as funny as the gentlemen. And in better taste, apparently, too. Usually. Excellent. So another dynamic that a lot of people think about when they try to take humor into the workplace is how do you direct it upward? Can you make fun of your boss? And if so, how? That is a great question. Uh, have you got your bonus yet that year? <laughs> <laughs> Let's assume the answer is yes, then what do you do? <laughs> well, you know, I, there is a long history of, of comedy speaking truth to power. So if you think about the trickster, the joker, um, so we spent time in, in the Amazon with Patch Adams, probably the most famous clown today, and uh, he said that the, the Joker was the only person who could tell the king he was an asshole. And I think that that can be true. You see this oftentimes with political satire and so on, where, where humor is used to get attention and to sort of ease a critique. And uh, I think that, that that takes some skill and it takes knowing that your boss is going to be a willing butt of a joke. And I think also who the audience there, who else might be laughing about that situation. What I often encourage people to do is not to joke about their grievances to their boss, um, but rather to use humor to complain. So I have a project in the Humor Research Lab on humorous complaining and the great benefits of humorous complaining. One problem with complaining to try to change someone else's behavior and using humor to do so is you might tell the person, this is not really a problem because of humor's association with non-serious situations. And so in terms of coping with bad situations, humor seems to be very good. In terms of drawing attention to the, the problems in the world, seems to be very good. But if you want to right some wrong, you might want to complain about it in a serious way. Hmm. 
Well, picking up then on the theme of speaking truth to power with humor, uh, AJ, you once interviewed a man who lives his life by radical honesty, where he just tells the truth all the time, saying exactly what he thinks to everyone he meets. And you experimented with this. Yes. How does it work? Well, as you say, it's called radical honesty. And the idea is that there's literally no filter between your brain and your mouth. So whatever is on your mind comes out. So this is a very dangerous way to live because he thinks like, if you have a crush on your wife's sister, you should tell your wife and tell her sister. And I'm like, really? So I did, I tried this. And Wait a minute, how about not having a crush on your wife's sister to begin with? <laughs> that is, uh, that's an excellent point. Uh, but, uh, but he, he, I tried it and you know, it was probably the hardest month of my life. Harder than living by the Bible. Harder than living by the Bible. Because yeah, you know, we lie all the time. You don't, uh, you can't imagine. I probably lied like eight times during this interview. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I will say, so I'll just very quickly, the worst part was when we were in a uh, restaurant with my wife and uh, we ran into a friend of hers from college and uh, they said, oh, we should all get together and have, uh, have a play date with our kids. And I said, what was on my mind? I said, well, you seem very nice, but I have enough friends already. I don't, I don't really want to ever see you again. And it was just horrible. Like I felt terrible. My wife was stormed out, so not recommended. But I will say this, uh, and that is, I believe in trans, I, a sustainable radical honesty. Like I do think it taught me to be more honest especially in a positive way. For instance, like uh, mentors, you know, we don't often call them up and tell them how much we, well, maybe you, cause you've got like 8,000 uh, mentees, proteges, cause you know, you help all these people. But, uh, but most of us, uh, I, I don't call my mentors enough and say, thank you for all you've done. You meant a lot to me. Uh, and especially as a man, you're not supposed to express that much emotion, but, this experiment taught me how valuable that can be, both to them and to me. So I do believe in positive, radical honesty. Like if you have something positive to say, you should just spill it out there. Don't, don't hold back. As long as you don't have one of those dangerous brains that would lead you to want to say things <laughs> that other people don't want to hear. That's, that's right. I think that, that's a great well, note to wrap yeah. up on. If, you, if, you are, uh, if you're thinking that having a crush on your wife's sister is positive, then yes, that is, <laughs> I'm talking about That's the fear. In, a, in a business situation where someone helped you out. Yes, then you should say, thank you. That, was, that meant a lot to me. Well, thanks to, to both of you for joining us. I think it's very rare to sit down with one author, let alone two, who have the ability to both make me think and make me laugh on the same page. And I think it's, it's really wonderful to have a chance to both learn about humor and experience it through the writing that you both do. And can't wait to continue reading. Thank Great. you. You too. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.